Well, without further ado, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I'm just going to briefly recap a little bit of what we covered last week. Uh, Last week, we looked at some introductory material. We discussed uh, Revelation. We discussed the author of Revelation. The author is John, the, one of the twelve, the brother of James. He is a human author. We discussed that it was him and not somebody named John the Elder, which is another person that is put forth as the author of Revelation, at least a human author. Uh, we looked at the date of the book of Revelation and argued there's two positions, an early and a late date. We argued for the later date. Uh, and we also made an argument that the, date, the dating of the book of Revelation, unlike every, almost every other book in the Bible, the dating actually plays a very strong role in how you interpret the book. Uh, if you adhere to an early date of Revelation, you will most likely take a preterist or partial preterist view. We'll get into that in a second. But we argued for a late date at near the end of the first century, uh, around 95 A.D., And now we're going to talk about Fred's favorite word, genre. Uh, We talked about the genre or the type category of writing that that, uh, Revelation falls into. Uh, Itself, in the first three verses, describes three literary genres or three literary categories. Uh, It calls itself an apocalypse or revelation. It calls itself a prophecy. And and, And we also see that it calls itself a letter. So those three uh, genres or those three categories of writing are prevalent in Revelation. But in the end, we describe Revelation as an apocalyptic prophecy. And then we also looked at schools of interpretation. There were four schools of interpretation. Uh, The historicist school, which basically sees the events occurring from Revelation 4 through Revelation 20 as encompassing several uh, successive ages of the church throughout history. The futurist school sees almost everything in those chapters as in the distant, far future. The preterist school sees everything in those chapters as being mostly fulfilled before A.D. 70, which again, which is why an early day of the writing kind of affects the way you interpret the book. And then the idealist says that those visions that you see in chapter 4 through chapter 20 are sort of representative of cycles and and things that will happen all throughout the church age from the time of the writing of Revelation to the time Christ returns. More than likely, though, what you'll see is maybe you'll see them intensifying as the end approaches. And then we argued last time that we would take a primarily idealist version or interpretation of the book, though we did recognize that there are some merits to the other Uh, schools of interpretation as well. And then we closed last week uh, by discussing pretty much the overall theme of the book of Revelation. We said that while Revelation, on the one hand, is a hard book to understand, and it is because it's got a lot of visions, it's got a lot of uh, images and pictures that you need to understand and you need a good grasp of the Old Testament in order to understand properly. So there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to understand Revelation. But on the other hand, Revelation is essentially a simple book to understand because in, in this basic understanding is that Christ has the victory and that we have the victory in Christ. And as long as we persevere, then we will attain, attain that final victory when Christ returns. And that's the kind of, it's really just a book of encouragement to encourage the church in her warfare, in her spiritual warfare, as she continues on in this pilgrim journey until Christ returns. It's an encouraging letter. It is a letter that brings hope. It is a letter that brings blessing. And it is a a book that brings uh, encouragement to the beleaguered church. So for tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first eight verses. Now, we looked very briefly last time at verses one through three, but I'm going to go in a little more detail And then we'll also expand down to verse 8 of chapter 1. So let me read those verses uh, to have them fresh in your mind. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. John, who bore witness to the word of God 
and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over all the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from from our sins by his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And we'll stop there. So here what you have is kind of two sections which serve as an introduction to the book of Revelation before you start to get to the kind of the meat of the the book. You have a prologue in verses 1 through 3 which just sort of set the stage and frame the the rest of the book. And then you have what is basically an epistolary greeting or a letter greeting as John now addresses the contents of this book to the seven churches which are in Asia. And that's... We'll kind of look at it in those two parts. So the first part is the prologue in verses 1 through 3, which we had just read. Now, what we noted last time is that revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's in the first few words of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a revelation about him, and it is also his revelation. So they're both are true. It is a revelation about him. It is a revelation about his victory. It is a revelation about his return. It is a revelation of how he will bring judgment to the unbelieving world and how he will then also bring in the new heavens and the new, and the new earth, how he will perfect his bride and how they will enter into the final state, the eternal state. But it's also his revelation. It was given by God to him who he passed on then to an angel, who then passed it on to John. And we looked at that word revelation. That's where you get the word apocalypse. And apocalypse is just the Greek word, apocalypsis, which just means a disclosure, an unveiling. So these are things that were kept secret in the mind of God. And now he is unveiling what's going to happen. And he's showing this to John. And he's showing this to John again because so he can provide encouragement for the church as it faces persecution, as it faces opposition in this world. We uh, just mentioned earlier that chain of custody, God to Jesus, to the angel, to John. And then note again here at the end of verse 1, he says uh, that he made known to his servants things which must shortly take place. Now when we looked at this last time, we kind of, made a little joke. We were like, well, how soon can it be? It's 2,000 years later, right? I mean, this kind of stretches any normal definition of the word soon, okay? But we're going to talk about this a little bit because many doubters will take verses like this or verses like you see in some of the Gospels where Jesus says, you know, he'll come soon or his, his return will be quickly, and they'll sort of mock the Bible. They'll say, well, obviously the Bible can't be true because you know, it's 2,000 years later and Jesus still hasn't returned and he talked about it being soon. So the, fi- the Bible is full of, of BS and we can't trust it for anything. But keep your finger in Revelation and turn, if you will, please, to the Old Testament book, Daniel. And I want to turn to Daniel chapter 2. Now, if you remember last time we said in order to kind of have a proper understanding of Revelation... We need to sort of have a good understanding of the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. Those three books in particular, and others as well. But they sort of have that same apocalyptic flavor to them. I'm going to read a fairly lengthy section of chapter 2 from verses 24 through 45. 
Okay, Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 24. Now, just a little bit of context. This is where King Nebuchadnezzar has his dream. He has a dream of this um, statue. Okay, the statue has the gold head, the silver torso, the bronze kind of waist, and then the iron legs with the toes that are sort of mixed with iron and clay. And he's like, I, this is a very weird dream. I don't know what I ate the night before, but obviously I, it affected the way I slept last night because I had this weird dream. And he goes and he tries to get his, his soothsayers and his magicians to interpret the dream. And they're like, uh, I don't know what's going on. Why don't you go get Daniel? So they go get Daniel and they bring Daniel in. Here, in, starting in verse 24, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. See, the, the wise men couldn't interpret the dream, so Nebuchadnezzar, kind of in a little, eh, you know, in a fit, it's like, okay, kill my wise men. And Daniel's like, no, 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 wait, wait. <laughs> don't, don't kill the wise men. Don't do that yet. So he went and said thus, and do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Verse 25. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man in the cap- of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. That word that's in in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's the word apocalypsis, who reveals, who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who made known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. The image head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, The kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to you the king 
what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. You can turn back to Revelation 1, please. So again, in that verse 28 there, Daniel tells the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, that same word, apocalypsis in the Greek translation, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So Daniel tells the king that God reveals secrets and he has shown what's going to happen in the latter days. And this phrase, the latter days, is kind of an Old Testament way of saying things are going to happen in the future. Things that are going to happen in the time of Messiah, when Messiah comes. Those are the latter days. And Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But the strange vision that Nebuchadnezzar gets and that Daniel interprets uh, is that of four successive world empires or world kingdoms. And of course, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is the first one. He is the gold head. He is the, so the gold head of the statue represents the Babylonian Empire, which was in power at the time that Daniel was doing this. And then after that comes the Medo-Persian Empire, which conquered the, the Babylonians probably around the, the end of the 6th century B.C. And then after that is the Empire of Greece, the, the bronze part, the bronze thighs, the Greek Empire or the Hellenistic Empire, the Macedonian Empire. And then the legs and the feet of iron and iron mixed with clay, that's Rome. That's Rome. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that God has given him, he has revealed to him what will come to place in the, in the latter days. These four successive empires. This vision is repeated later. We'll look at it a little bit later. But this last kingdom you see here is, this, is the kingdom of Christ. Is that stone cut out of a, a mountain without hands that comes and it shatters the, the statue, and it, and it destroys the entire uh, structure of the statue, all of it, and it tur- blows it away like chaff, and then that small stone then grows to be a large mountain. The kingdom of Christ, of course, starts out small. It started out small when Christ came. You know, it was just a few disciples, and then later on, the church, you know, grows. Think of all those parables in Matthew 13, where it says, Matthew, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. And one of them, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's very small. You plant it in the garden, then what happens? It grows into a large tree, and then its branches can provide shade and shelter to the birds of the air. So the kingdom of God starts small, but it grows. Now here, what to Daniel was in the latter days is to John here in Revelation, something that must shortly take place. Now, why is that? Because the coming of Christ, with the coming of Christ, we are already in the latter days. With the coming of Christ, we are now in that final period of of human history, of redemptive history before Christ returns. The end is imminent with an I. That means it is soon. There is nothing left on the prophetic calendar. There is nothing left that is for for God to do or any kind of thing that has been foreseen except the end. So when he says that it's soon, it means that it's the next event to come in God's timing. The next event to come in God's timing is the end, is when Christ returns, is when final judgment comes. But another thing we need to understand is that God's timing is not our timing, right? Right? God's timing is, is very much not like our, like our timing. In 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, Peter writes, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, when Peter writes this, he's not saying literally that, you know, for God, it's a thousand years, that's one day. You know, it's, you know, it's just, it's a figure of speech just meant to say God's timing is not our timing. Just because it's a thousand years doesn't mean that God is like, okay, waiting, 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 checking his watch and looking. It's like, okay, now Jesus can come. That's not what's happening. It's just God's timing doesn't operate like we do. We're temporal. 
God is eternal. He's outside of time. He doesn't function in time like we do. So we are stuck in time. I don't know what's going to happen an hour from now because I can't see an hour from now. I have to wait an hour from now to find out what's going to happen an hour from now, right? Of course, another thing we could say, too, even from this verse in Peter, is that the end doesn't come immediately because God is still gathering people to himself. That's what Peter says, right? His promise is some, is, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, all the elect, all the church that he is gathering in throughout history. He is, when, when the church is finally gathered in, then the end will come. But until then, God is long-suffering. He is patient, and he is patiently waiting as the Spirit works and brings new birth to people, and people are added to the church. If you want, you can turn a few pages over to Revelation chapter 6 and to get another idea of this idea of God's timing and our timing. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, this is in the context of when the seals on the scroll are being broken. So uh, we talked about it a little bit this morning in the sermon, but there's this great scroll with seven seals that is given to, to Christ. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb that, lamb that was slain before time. And he is the one who is worthy and the scroll is given to him. And then Christ starts opening the scroll by removing one seal after the other. And each seal that is removed starts to kind of unveil God's judgment to the world in stages. And we're at the fifth seal here in verse 10 of chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had or held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. So here you have this image of the martyrs of the church throughout the church age, and they're under the altar, so to speak. And this is all visionary, so it's not literally. But they are under the altar, and as, the, as Jesus opens up the fifth seal, they cry out. They cry out, how long do we have to wait until we are vindicated? Until our testimony is vindicated? Because we have given our lives to you. And the Lord says, Hold on. Hold on. Just be patient a little while longer. He gives them a white robe. We'll talk about that when we get there. But he gives them a white robe and says, wait until the number of your brethren are complete. So this idea then is that the end is coming. It's soon. But there's still gathering in of people, uh, a gathering in of the church in the case of Peter, or a gathering in of the people who will, uh, give their, who, who will give their lives for their testimony as well. The bottom line is this. We need to adjust our way of thinking in regards to time. As I, as I said last time, soon to John's readers, uh, it was soon to John's readers, and it's 2,000 years later, so that means it's just 2,000 years sooner now than it was then. So it's even more soon now than it was 2,000 years ago, and that's how we should probably look at it. Now, as we look at verse 2, verse 2 just here tells us that John, to whom the words of this prophecy were given, is the one who bears witness or he bore witness. Uh, This is a a very popular word that John likes, this idea of witness bearing or testimony. Uh, It's the same Greek word for both cases, the bearing witness and the testimony. It's the word that finds its way into our English language as the word martyr. So the word martyr, it's almost, it's a transliteration. So it's a, it's like they, they took the Greek letters and they just changed them for English letters and you get martyr out of it. And it just meant someone who bore witness or it meant someone who testifies to something. But it becomes associated with people who give their lives for Christ because their testimony often, particularly in the early church, their testimony led to their deaths. So they bore witness unto death. So that's why we get the term martyr from that. But here John is bearing witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it's probably best to understand word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ here as the same thing. 
And then moving on to verse 3. Verse 3, we looked at this last time, of course, that it promises a blessing to those who read and hear and keep the words of this prophecy. I want to emphasize that word keep. Okay? Reading and hearing is fine, and you should do that. But it's, the, it's not the person, you know, what does James say? It's, it's not the person who hears the word who will be saved. It's the person who does the word. So the person who keeps the word. And of course, we said that revelation takes the form of a letter. This means that revelation was meant to be read aloud. And more than likely, the, pers- the people who first heard this book would have heard it audibly. It would have, the, the letter would have been passed. And we'll get to this in a second. But it's passed in the seven churches as it goes the person would probably have just read it in its entirety to them. They would have sat there and listened to it. Now, obviously, we're not going to do it tonight, but I think it's an interesting exercise to do, maybe for next time if you want to take the revelation challenge, so to speak. But maybe just try in the next two weeks, or maybe as we go through the series, to read the book of Revelation in one sitting. It's not a long book. It's 21 chapters, but some of the chapters are really short. And just read it all in one sitting and kind of just sort of immerse yourself in how John's first century audience would have heard it. Because they would have heard it in one sitting. They would have said, okay, tonight we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Come back next week and I'll read you the next part of the letter. That's not how it would have worked. That's just how we study it because we kind of take it apart piece by piece. And we look at each little word and we try to you know, bring it all together and try to bring the whole scope of scripture into it. That's not how the, the Bible was read to the people back then. All these letters were read entirely in their, in their sitting. They would have heard this. They would have stored those words in their hearts, and then they would have moved on. That's why they kept them, because they would have kept reading them aloud like that. But take special note here and to keep these things written in it, as we said. Just like the Bible in general, reading and hearing aren't enough. Uh, we need to be doers of the word. So now we move on to verses 4 through 8 as we see this greeting to the seven churches in Asia. Now this, like I said, this book is part letter. One of the categories of writing, one of the genres of this book is a letter. And we see it here in verse 4. John, the author, to the seven churches, the recipients who are in, in Asia. And then you get this grace to you in peace, the typical first century letter opening Author, recipient, and then a greeting. And here the human author greets his readers, and we see the seven churches which are in Asia. Now Asia, of course, is Asia Minor. So if you can kind of picture a map of the Middle East, that's where Turkey would be. Modern-day Turkey is there. Um, Now, of course, there were more than seven churches in Asia. All right? There were more than seven churches in Asia. We know of at least two others other than the seven that are listed here. Colossae, we have a book that was written there to the Colossians, is, not, is, is in Asia, but it's not mentioned in here. Uh, another one would probably be Troas, which is also in Asia Minor, but it's not mentioned in the seven here. And we'll learn more about these churches when we get to the seven letters that are addressed to each individual church in the coming weeks. But the order in which we see these churches here in chapters 2 and 3... Starting in Ephesus and going all the way to Laodicea, if you were to, again, if you were to have a map of Asia Minor, it's a semicircular route. So it's almost like that would be the route that if a person was taking this book to go to each of those seven churches, that would be the route they would go from Ephesus to uh, Smyrna to Pergamos, all the way down to Laodicea. It's just following a little semicircular route in Asia Minor. Now, the number seven, we're going to get into this. We didn't do it in the introductory area, but numbers play a big role in Revelation. And there's going to be a lot of numbers. You're going to see sevens. You're going to see twelves. You're going to see twenty-fours. You're going to see um, a thousand. That's a big one. Uh, Twelve hundred and sixty or three and a half years play. All these numbers will come into play, but they're all of them are symbolic of something. Okay, they're all symbolic of something. They're almost certainly not to be taken literally. So the thousand-year reign is not literally meant to be literal 1,000 years, etc., etc., etc. But here, seven is a biblical number that represents perfection or completeness or wholeness. Okay, that was a, a very Hebrew concept. 
Seven meant complete. Seven days in the week. There's no other reason why we have seven days in the week other than the seven days of creation. And when God finished creation on the seventh day, he said, it is done. It is complete. I'm going to have my Sabbath rest now. So this idea of seven means completion. So in other words, providentially speaking, these seven churches are churches that represent the entirety of the church then and now throughout all the ages. You're going to see all of these churches are sort of symbolic of churches that you'll see in any period of time. There's going to be a church that will be like the church of Ephesus. There's going to be a church that's going to be like the church of Smyrna or Pergamos or Philadelphia or whatever. All of these churches, they're picked by God as representative of churches that you're going to see throughout all of redemptive history. So it's the complete church. It is the fullness of the church. Now, again, in verses four and five, you see that familiar New Testament greeting, grace and peace. Now, this greeting, interestingly enough, comes from the entire Trinity itself. It says, grace grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. This is the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And this phrase speaks of his eternity, who is, who was, who is to come. He is his infinity, his not being bound at all by time, space, or anything. He is the boundless God. If you remember back in Exodus when Moses comes and he, and he sees the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, he's, this is like his second 40-year period. The life of Moses can be broken into three 40-year periods. And this is his sort of, I'm in the wilderness of Midian period. And he's out there tending his father-in-law's sheep. And he catches off the corner of his eye a bush that was burning. And it looks it's like, this is very interesting. This bush is burning and it's not being consumed. Let me check this out. I think I would check this out too if I saw a burning bush that was not being consumed. So he goes up to the bush and then he hears a voice from heaven coming from the bush that says, take off your sandals because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And then, he's, and then in that conversation that he has with Moses, he gives him his covenant name because he says, I want you to go tell, you know, free your people, go to uh, Pharaoh and tell him to release the people. It's like, why would the people listen to me? I'm just this dude out here in the wilderness. He says, I, I need to have something to give them. He says, okay, well, give them my name. I'm going to give you my covenant name. And he tells him his name is Yahweh, or I am that I am, or I will be that I, what I will be. And this name speaks again also of God's eternity, of God's infiniteness, his timelessness, uh, all of these things, his everlasting nature. So you get this wrapped up in this phrase of who is, who was, and who is to come. He's past, he's present, and he is future. He's, he's not bound at all by time. But you also see here, this greeting of grace and peace comes from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now this speaks of the Holy Spirit. Now again, you're like, seven spirits? Wait, I thought there was only one Holy Spirit, and I thought there's only three persons in the Trinity. Well, the seven, again, it's not like there were seven spirits literally there. Again, think of that number, seven. What does seven mean? Wholeness, completeness, fullness, okay? Um, Perfection. But there are also some allusions to this in the Old Testament. Actually, providentially enough, we read this in the sermon this morning. Uh, Isaiah 11, 2. 11, verse 2. I don't know if I have it in the handout or not, but um, you don't need to turn there. But in Isaiah 11, verse 2, It says that the spirit of the Lord, and I'm going to count here, okay. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Okay, Isaiah 11 verse 2 sort of mentions seven facets of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, again, it's just the fullness of the spirit, the fullness of the third person of the Trinity, In Zechariah 3.9, we see, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, that is the high priest Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Again, seven eyes means complete knowledge. I could see all all seeing, all knowing kind of a thing. So Isaiah 11.2 mentions the sevenfold character of the Spirit. Zechariah speaks of the seven eyes, which represent 
divine qualities such as omniscience, all-knowing, all-seeing. There might also be a reference to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, where the prophet speaks about seven golden lampstands. All these things, though, just when he said, you know, the seven spirits that stand before his throne, it's just talking about the fullness uh, and the perfection and the completeness of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, third, this greeting comes from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Obviously, Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But we see three qualifiers here of Jesus Christ, three descriptions. The first is that he is the faithful witness. Again, that word witness. Jesus perfectly bore witness to the truths of God like no other. If you were here when we talked about John 1.18 a few weeks back in our Sunday sermons, we talked about how John is the one who makes the Father known. And that word makes the Father known is a word that we use in, in seminary speak. It talks about exegete or exegesis. You may have heard that word and like, that sounds like a made up word. And it's, it probably is, but the idea, all words are made up right at some point. But the idea is that the, I, the exercise of exegesis is making something known, taking the meaning of it and bringing out the meaning of it. And that's what Jesus is. He is the one who makes the Father known. He reveals the Father. If you remember from that sermon, I said, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That's the point. But he's also the firstborn from the dead. Clearly a reference to his resurrection. Now, he's not the first person brought back from the dead. Okay? There are many stories in the Bible of people who are dead who are resuscitated. There's, several, there's a couple in the Old Testament. Uh, I think Elijah or Elisha performs one of those miracles. Uh, Jesus performs a couple of raisings of the dead in the New Testament too. Lazarus is a big famous one that you see in John 11, but there's also the the widow's son, I think it's in Luke or Matthew 7, somewhere around there. There, In other words, there have been people that have resuscitated and come back to life. That's not what John is talking about here when he says the firstborn from the dead. Okay, He's talking about resurrection. He is, he is the first person to be resurrected from the dead in the sense of having that end times life, that spiritual life that we will all partake of once Jesus returns. It's not bringing back this old decrepit body of mine back to life. Like, you know, if you have someone who sort of flatlines for a few minutes and you're able to do some CPR and resuscitate that person, it's not like that. Okay, that's not what resurrection is like. At least I hope not. If it's like that, I want my money back. But the idea is that this idea of Jesus being the firstborn from the dead is he is the one who is the first one resurrected. Okay, he's the first one to be resurrected. He is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. All right, he is the first fruits of a glorious end times harvest that will come in at the end of the age. First fruits being a very popular, I'm sure, reference to farmers. You know, the idea that you sow and then you sow a little bit and then you take the first fruits and you give that as an offering to God as a sort of a guarantee of the harvest that is to come. Jesus is the first fruits. So firstborn then also just denotes his status and privilege, which is why Jesus is the head of the church. And then thirdly, Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Paul says in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God. And though Jesus told Pilate when he was, comes before him in the trial, he says, my kingdom is not, is not of this world, that kingdom will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. And of course, when Jesus returns, that final battle will be a hilariously one-sided battle. It'll be, I mean, it'll be... Worse than if, you know, you took Nebraska and decided to play them against the Sutton football team. It would be a worse beating than that. Because Jesus says he will slay them with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Again, a symbol that represents Jesus will slay the rebel nations with just a word. He will speak a word and they will all drop dead. So as we go into the rest of verse 5 here and into verse 6, after he greets them in the... uh, with the, you know, this Trinitarian greeting, you get a word of doxology or a word of praise 
to Jesus. He is the one who loved us and who washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, I wouldn't normally do this in a sermon, but I'm going to do it here in a lesson because this is a different kind of uh, context here. But in verse 5, where it says, uh, washed us from, his, from our sins with his own blood or in his own blood. Um, I don't know if New King James... Okay, it does. There's a footnote that says, loves us and freed us. Okay? So it's either loved us and freed us or loved us and washed us. Okay? So there's a, a variant. There's a variant because... The King James, New King James, use a kind of a different textual basis, a Greek text, textual basis than sort of other translations like ESV, NIV, New American Standard. They use a different Greek text than the, it's virtually identical, but there are differences, okay? And here's one of those. But the difference is, it's, it's kind of funny, because the, the word for wash and the word for free differ only by one letter, Okay? And, and actually, and phonetically, they sound the same, too. They're, it's the word luo, and it's, even though it's spelled different, it's, it sounds the same. So it's like, sort of like, you know, two, two, and two, right? Which, which one am I saying? Am I saying two, T-W-O, the word, the number two? Am I saying I'm two somebody? Or am I saying two like is in also? So it's the same thing. It's the same word, washed, freed, differs by one letter, sounds the same. Now, the point I want to make is this. Neither reading is unbiblical, okay? Jesus does wash us from our sins. Jesus also freed us from our sins. So, so, I mean, neither one is sort of like, well, one's heresy, the other one's not. It's the same concept. He, we've been freed from our sins. We've been washed by our sins. His blood washes away the guilt of our sins. And it is also the payment made on our behalf that frees us or redeems us from our sins. Just wanted to mention that because there is a difference there. But he's also, Jesus Christ is also the one who has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Now, what does a king do? He rules, he reigns. A king rules and reigns. And what, is a, what does a priest do? He does a lot of things, but essentially he serves. A priest is a servant, Okay. So a king rules and reigns, a priest serves God, and Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, okay, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That phrase, royal priesthood, kind of encompasses both kings and priests in one phrase, you are a royal priesthood. You are a priesthood who rules and reigns. You serve, but you also rule and reign at the same time. And the blessings that were promised to Israel to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests are now granted to God's people as a whole, the church. And because all of this is to Jesus, then it is to Jesus that glory and dominion forever and ever be proclaimed and ascribed. Christ and Christ alone is the one to be praised. So now in verses 7 through 8, after this doxology, we see this announcement of the coming king. In verse 7, look again, please. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, there's a lot in this verse to unpack. Now, on one side, you know, in one understanding, on surface, it seems pretty pretty clear what what is being said here right uh after pronouncing glory and dominion to to christ um forever and ever we see an announcement he's going to return on clouds and that every eye will see him okay that that seems pretty easy okay he's going to come on a cloud and everyone's going to see him so what's the big deal well jesus told his disciples in his olivet discourse the signs of his coming and he said there in Matthew 24, 30, that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and in in with uh, power and great glory. Now, does anyone know what the meaning of the title Son of Man means? Yeah. 
I mean, for one thing, it does speak of his humanity, but that's not all it speaks of. It's really, it's a reference to a vision that Daniel saw in Daniel 7. So again, hold your place here in Revelation and turn, please, back to Daniel. But this time, Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel uh, chapter 7, verse 9. So Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I'll explain that in a second. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him uh, near before him. Then he to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, right before this passage, Daniel himself has a vision of four beasts, okay? Four beasts that, that come in succession. And it's very similar to the vision that Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? There are four beasts that come up and they are also telling of four successive kingdoms that will come. Again, the line, there's a lion with eagle's wings that represents Babylon. There is a great bear that represents Medo-Persia. A leopard with four wings and four heads, which represents Greece. And then a dreadful beast that was exceedingly strong with iron teeth and ten horns, which represents Rome. And of course, then he gets this vision then of the ancient of days. That's God sitting on his throne with all of these ministering angels comes. And then he says, one like the son of man comes before him. And it's given dominion, and then all of these kingdoms are destroyed. Very similar to that vision in chapter 2, where the stone comes and shatters the statue and, and crumbles it all to dust. But this vision of the Ancient of Days, which is God, and the one like the Son of Man is Jesus, who comes on the clouds of heaven. This, is, this one comes to the Ancient of Days, and he is given dominion, and all the kingdoms will, will uh, be destroyed by him, but his kingdom will not be destroyed. And we'll look at this a little more closely when we get to Revelation 4 and 5. But this is what should be uh, brought to mind when we hear of Jesus in verse 7 of chapter 1 of Revelation. You can turn back there now, please. When he says, he is coming, behold, he is coming on the clouds of heaven. That should bring to mind the image of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. And we're told that every eye will see him. So go to going back to Fred's question about you know, John MacArthur and dispensationalism. Will there be a secret rapture? Not if every eye is going to see him, right? I mean, even in 1 Thessalonians, which the dispensationals love that passage because that's where the rapture is. Well, it says, what? There's a great trumpet sound. And, and then in Revelation, we're told every eye is going to see him. It's like, that does not sound very secret to me. I mean, if it's a secret rapture, I'm not going to come with a trumpet and go, doo, doo, doo. you know, I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, so trumpet sounds, every eye going to see him. To me, that sounds like it's coming. Every eye is going to see him. Jesus comes. It's not going to be a secret. And then the tribes of the earth will mourn because of this. This is a, a reference to Zechariah 12, where it talks about, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, there are a number of ways to understand this reference to Zechariah 12, verse 10. Uh, one is that through the preaching of the gospel, those who were previously mocking and hard-hearted will then mourn. They will recognize their sin. They will recognize that they are sinners and they will mourn their sin and come to Christ uh, for forgiveness. 
Second way, uh, if I said three, I meant two. There are two ways to understand this. Second way to understand this is that when Jesus returns at the end of the age, those who had rejected Jesus, their entire lives will see him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn because judgment is now at hand. They're going to mourn because the time is, is, is here. Judgment is here. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I've lived a sinful life, and now the judge is here. I'm out of time. That's why they would mourn. Now, I think both interpretations are okay. The first one, I think, is more in line with what Zechariah is trying to get, this idea that they'll see him whom they have pierced, and then they will repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness. But the second interpretation, I think, is more in line of what Revelation is trying to get. They're going to see him return, the one whom they have pierced. They're going to see, every eye will see him, and then they will mourn, because the judge is here, and judgment is coming. And then in verse 8, Jesus speaks and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Of course, Alpha and Omega, that's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It would be the same thing as saying, I am the A and the Z, or if you're Canadian or New Zealander, the A and the Z, if you, if you like those, that way of saying it. But Jesus is using terms that were earlier used to refer to God, the Father, thereby confirming yet again the deity of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. But in saying the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus is saying that he is the goal, he is the purpose of all creation and all history. Because Paul says in Colossians um, that for by Christ All things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and all things were created for him. He is the the end, the beginning and end of all creation. He's the beginning and end of all redemptive history. He is the purpose for which all things were created.